0: You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, good morning. Um, It's a privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. Before we do that, though, I just want to remind you that you can follow along in the YouVersion app. All you have to do is open it up, click on More at the bottom right, and then click on Events, and you'll see The Brook. And uh, once you you open that up, you will see all of our points, scriptures, even be able to add your own thoughts. Um, With that said, the middle school years, ones I'm sure that all of you as adults, you look back on fondness with, especially as you relive them with your kids, as you look at one photo after another, and all of a sudden you start to hear their laughter, and then their jokes start coming, as they make fun of your sweet hairdo, um, I don't know about you, but I rock this bad boy straight down. No hairspray, no gel. Hey, mom, dad, I've combed it. Grab my lunchbox because you had to have a lunchbox back then. And then let's go. We're ready to roll. I'm heading out to middle school. Or maybe they just make fun of what you wore. Um, I don't know what your attire was, but for me, I love some oversized Tommy Hilfiger shirts that you could put another me inside of as well. And then, man, you would have some pumps. Everybody had to have pumps back then or British knight shoes. Praise him for some British nights. All right. Or just the fact that as they look at your middle school yearbook photo, they're going, mom, dad, something has happened because you do not look anything like you do Uh, back back then there's something different about you now you have changed and on and on these jokes could come and there might be some students in here they're going oh man i'm so thankful this won't happen to me because of our times and man i'm so trendy and i spend hours obsessing over my hair in the mirror and making sure i gel it and everything and um, i'll just tell you um you're wrong Um, Your kids, one day, they will laugh and they will make fun of you, maybe for the fact that you spent hours checking out your hair, all right? It will happen. However, there was one time or one particular event that I don't look back with fondness on during those years. It was my very first middle school youth camp. Why? Well, it was during one of our small group times that one of our youth leaders, um, not a youth, uh, not the youth pastor, but just a youth leader told my group that you could ask Jesus out of your heart. So as you can imagine, for a very young and immature kid, this absolutely rocked my world. It left me uh, feeling confused, devastated, and honestly worried. And so I started asking questions. Was I really saved? When I surrendered to Jesus at the age of eight, was it real? What if I'd lost my salvation somewhere along the way? Is it really even possible to lose your salvation? And on and on, these questions went rumbling inside of my head. And let me just say, to answer the questions that I just mentioned very quickly, no, it is impossible to lose your salvation. Um, To say you can is a lie from the pit of hell itself. Because Scripture clearly speaks to the fact that once you were saved, you were always saved. That you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit who is fully God. However... For most of my middle school and high school years, this doubt and this worry, they followed me around and it, left me, it let me start running to one Christian event after another, even to my youth pastor and many times uh, sitting in the living room with my parents just as an emotional basket case, looking for one thing. I wanted assurance. And if you were to look at that, uh, that word in the dictionary, it would define it this way assurance, a positive declaration intended to give confidence. I was wanting someone or something to give me the assurance, to give me the confidence that I really was saved. And now I can tell you after many years, God has over and over again assured me that I am his, that I'm known by him as not only as I look at his word, but as I'm also called to examine my life. But when you think about it, that word assurance, it really is a big deal to us in our day and time. Just think about when you buy products. I mean, you probably all have an Amazon Prime account. I think we all do. But I mean, you know that when you're going to buy a product, you'll go before you hit purchase and you'll look at some of those reviews. And it doesn't matter if it has a thousand four-star reviews You start reading them, and all it takes is maybe three or four one-star, two-star reviews, and then your confidence starts getting to be shaken in that product. So you start looking at other products. I think I'll just hold off and make sure that this is the best one. Or how about when you start buying power tools? you're going to look for what gives you the best warranty. It gives you that confidence that this will last. Or when you're about to invest money, you want to make sure before you sign on the dotted line that they will promise, their, their promise will come through. They will do exactly what they said and you will get that return. Or how about even our food? I mean, nowadays, if you don't like it, you want to know that you can get your money back or if Domino's doesn't deliver it in time, they will still give you a free cold pizza. I mean, it's, I mean, if you look around and on and on again, we can look at different examples, but I mean, we love to be assured. It's amazing what by, by them just slapping some words on a box or just reading some reviews or them slipping it in an advertisement in a commercial. It gives us this feelings, uh, feeling of confidence and we're going, yes, that product will do exactly what it says it will do. And so we love to be assured. However, sadly, when it comes to our faith, There are many people, maybe even some of you in this room, that wonder, can we actually be assured? Or is it just a wait-and-see approach that we have to take when it comes to our salvation? You might have asked, how do I know if I'm saved? Maybe you wrestle with doubt when it comes to your faith, and as a result, you're paralyzed with fear, so you stop trusting, you stop walking like I did. Or maybe even some people will say, you know what, I don't even think it can be a reality. I don't think you can truly know where you're going to spend eternity until I die. So I'll just find out one way or another if I'm in or if I'm out when I take my last breath. Which honestly doesn't sound like a very good way to live with eternity in the balance. Well, this morning, John has some good news for us. What we're going to see is he takes the guesswork out of knowing if we are truly in Christ. And what he wants us to see as we continue our walk through the series of 1 John, what he wants us to see is that as God's children, we can have assurance that we have fellowship with him. We can have this spiritual reality that we are known by him and that we know him. We can have an eternal security. So, if you have your Bible, go, in, go ahead and open it with me to 1 John 2, where we will be looking at the first six verses. And while you're making your way there, what I want us to see today are three very powerful truths as to why we can have assurance or confidence that we are known by the Father, that we have fellowship with Him. So, let's pick up and read. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him... Truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. At the very start of this passage, we see John addresses them as His little children. And He does this not only because He is much older than those He is writing, but also to show them His love for them. And unlike in our day and time, if I were to walk up to an adult and call you my little child, um, not only would that offend them, but they'd probably punch me in the face. The readers in John's day would have known that John is doing this and calling them that because he cares for them, he loves them, but it would also signal to them that John is going to deal with them in this letter very lovingly instead of harshly. And so he proceeds to tell them why he is writing this letter. And to go back, what we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks is that he wants to make sure you understand as God's children, you're called to walk in the light, not in darkness. And as God's children, you're called to take sin seriously because sin is a very big deal to God. You can't just sweep it under the rug and just ignore it. You can't point out to the fact, well, Jesus died and because of his death and his resurrection, you know what, I've been set free. So that means I can live however I want to live. Rather, John wants us to see that you've been set free from sin, not to sin. And as a result, our, tra- our trajectory after we come to Christ, is towards holiness. However, John knows it's inevitable. He knows that we will sin. That's why he said, even in verse 2, or in verse 1, but if anyone does sin... He knows at some point we are going to give in, that we are going to fall short. Even as we're pursuing holiness, we will listen to the lies of the enemy and we will see that that temptation and we'll grab it and we'll take a bite. But, But John says, hey, listen, if you truly know you were in Christ, there's good news. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to fall into despair. Why? Because the assurance of our faith is rooted in who Christ is and what he has done for us. Look back at 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2 again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John says that first of all, the assurance of our faith is rooted in who Christ is and that he is our advocate. That word advocate, it means one who comes alongside to plead another's cause, And in the ancient world, that word advocate was like a modern day defense attorney. And in the courtroom scene, he is the counselor. He is the attorney who comes to aid or defend defend his client. You know, I don't know if you remember the good old shows that they don't make anymore, sadly, but Perry Mason and Matlock. All right, I could watch, especially Matlock. I could binge watch that thing before binge watching was ever a thing thanks to Netflix. And what always amazed me was how Matlock and Perry Mason were always right. They always won their case and they were always able to prove their client's innocence that really they had just been wrongly accused, that they had never committed the crime they had been accused of. But John says this attorney isn't like the ones you see on the TV or the ones you'll find even filling our courtrooms today. This attorney is one who stands before the one true judge, God, the father, and he pleads our case. Who is this advocate? Who is this one that comes alongside of us to plead our cause? John says it is Jesus Christ, the righteous. In his case, it's not grounded on our own works uh, because we are guilty as charged. We have been caught red-handed. They have the tapes. They have the photos to show that we have committed treason against holy, a holy God. But rather, Jesus' case is grounded in his own finished work. Matthew Henry would say, The clients are guilty. Their innocence and legal righteousness cannot be pleaded. It's the advocate's own righteousness that he must plead for the criminals. And so he pleads our case before God the Father day in and day out. And what he pleads on our behalf is his very own death that he has paid the price and he is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so because of what Christ has done for us on our behalf, the, the father's demands have been satisfied, which you, means you and I, we don't need a teacher. We don't need a priest or a pope um, to represent us or to plead our case. Actually, that wouldn't suffice. We need an advocate whose name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we need an advocate because we have a very real adversary, the enemy, who day in and day out is accusing us before God. Revelations 12:10 says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brother has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And I want to stop here just so you get the picture. That right now the enemy is standing before God and he's saying, see, see, do you see how they worshiped You. But then do you see how they live life? Do you see, you know, they keep coming to you and saying, hey God, and they repent and or they're saying they're sorry for these things. But yet, man, all I do is I just dangle that sin out there in front of them again and I get them every single time. Do you see how much they lust? Do you see how much they care about their money or just their own pride and their own accomplishments? Do you see all that they've done or all their sins that they've done? They don't love you. over and over again, he's accusing us. And that's when Jesus steps in and says, no. Hey, Satan, you're the liar. Because they've surrendered to me, they are known. I know them and they are mine. I mean, because do you see my hands? Do you see my feet? Do you see my head where the crown of thorns was? Do you see my shredded back? Because of my wounds, they have been healed. They are known. So get out of here with your lies. And so he is our advocate, but John doesn't stop there. He tells us the reason why Jesus is our advocate is because of his resume. It's found in what he has done. Jesus is our propitiation. See, you can't divorce the two. You can't divorce um, the propitiation and the advocate. Jesus cannot be your advocate unless he is your propitiation. And that word propitiation is one we don't really use a lot. But simply yet powerfully, it means this. The satisfaction of God's wrath against sin by the death of Jesus. Let me say it again. The satisfaction of God's wrath against sin by the death of Jesus. You see, the ultimate problem is that God's wrath is against us. His righteous anger, it stands against our sin. And so justice must be served. He can't overlook it. He can't ignore it. Justice must be handed out. So a propitiation is necessary for our sins. And the good news is that God has made a way to satisfy his own wrath for you and I. First John 4 10 says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus's sacrificial death on the cross. it satisfied the demands of God's justice that must be satisfied. And his sacrificial death was for all people, for all humanity, for God so loved the world. And as John would say here, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And to be perfectly clear, we're not talking about universalism. We're not talking about the fact that, well, because Jesus died, then that means everybody in the world is now saved and they just have a relationship with Jesus. We're not talking about that. Because for one to truly know Christ, they must exercise faith. And let's be clear about that: is that it's God that is the one who gives us faith. It's God that gives us grace. It's not by our works because Scripture in Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead. It was only through the working of the Holy Spirit and Him wooing us back to Him that we were able to exercise faith. But for those who do not receive Christ, God's wrath and His anger will pour out against them on the final day of judgment, judgment which means church family we can't just sit in here. We can't just play. Well, I'm just going to kind of be indifferent. I don't want to offend anybody, you know, step on their toes. I'll just hopefully pray for them occasionally. And maybe one day they'll figure it out. Maybe my neighbor will kind of get the hints, um, you know, that I love Jesus and maybe they'll surrender their life to Jesus as well. Or, or maybe my neighbor will come to know Jesus. No, instead you and I, we should have this burden to go. You know what? Jesus died for my friend. Jesus died for my coworker. And so I can't help but go out and share the good news of the gospel to him. I can't help but advance his kingdom. You cannot hog the gospel to yourself. But if you are in Christ, you don't have a reason to despair. You don't have a reason to doubt. And what happens when you think about it, every time you doubt it, all of a sudden your eyes get fixed on yourself and you start wondering, have I done enough? Are my accomplishments good enough? Instead of fixing your eyes on Jesus, but as Christians, we get to fix our eyes on Jesus and say his death was sufficient. It was enough. And as he said on the cross, it is finished, which means we don't have to doubt. We don't have to despair. Instead, we can have hope. We can have peace We can have joy and confidence that we are His, that we are known by Him and that He is our advocate pleading our case. And every single day, He never loses a case. And you see, we have to start and we have to end here this morning. It all starts and it ends with Jesus because if Jesus isn't our propitiation, then He's not our advocate. And if that's not the case, then we are all doomed and we have a reason to doubt in despair right now but praise the lord that he is our advocate and that he is our propitiation. And if that wasn't alone enough to give you the assurance that you're in Christ, John gives you a test to take and don't we all love tests. Let's jump back to 1 John 2 and look at verse 3. It says and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Just in these three verses, we see that it's a big deal for us that John wants us to know. He uses it three times or four times in just these three verses and even more all throughout this book. But he wants us to have this absolute certainty that we are in Christ, that we don't have to doubt and despair. And he tells us how. By taking a test and this is just one of the tests he calls believers to take And this test is vital for you to take because it shows the spiritual state of your heart And I know again, some of you may go. I don't do tests. I hate tests. I'm really bad at it So i'm just going to kind of ignore this and just kind of you know, I think i'm good Well, scripture actually tells you to examine yourself second corinthians thirteen five: examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So 2 Corinthians says, this test you have to take for yourself. You have to be totally honest and transparent about yourself. You don't get a partner to help you. It's not open book. You don't get to take it for somebody else, so it makes you feel better about who you are. No, you've got to be totally honest and take it for yourself. And here's the question. I think if we could wrap it up in one question, what John is asking in this test for us to take is this. Are you continually or consistently observing and walking in obedience to Christ's commands? Are you consistently observing and walking in obedience to Christ's commands? You see, our assurance is made evident through our obedience. You want assurance that you truly know Christ and then you are known by Him? Then examine your life, John says. How are you living? Your external obedience, it gives proof to the inside out change. It reveals how genuine your faith is and that you're growing in Christ's likeness. This obedience, it doesn't save you, but it wells up as an act of worship as you are being transformed and you're looking more and more like Christ. Will you be perfect? No, John has already reminded us of that. You're going to make mistakes. You may may even start feeling lukewarm at times. You may feel spiritually dry. I mean, you may wrestle with a sin. You may not want to walk in community at certain times. But here's the thing. You don't stay there. Because as you continually press into the Father, and as you continually seek His face through His Holy Spirit, He draws you back to Him over and over and over again. But please hear me, as you look at your life, you should see a consistent pattern of walking in obedience to all that he has commanded. Not perfect, but a consistent pattern. That's why John says, keep his word. It would be better translated, guard his word. If you're a true believer in Christ, man, you should desire to guard and protect his word and to seek him and to know him and to delight in his word and say, you know what? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to live by his word. We're going to walk in obedience to him. Even if the culture is going to make fun of us or, or label us, that's okay. We're going to guard and delight in his word. John says though, on the flip side, if you just say, you know him, Maybe you even have some good theology in your head. You can tell a few stories about what Jesus has done. If you just go to church, but that's it. And God's word really has no place in your heart. You know, you just kind of live however you want to live. After all, it, it's your life. So you don't care about it. You don't care about his word. You don't care about guarding guarding it. It's not a treasure to you. And even when you come to God's word, you know, you just pick the, the parts that you like or that, you know, that that go along with your friend's lifestyle or a political party or what the culture says. You go, I just like those parts. I, I like the part about loving others, but yet we miss the part where it says first, before all that, you gotta love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. And John says, if you're just maybe picking a few parts that you like, but really God's word is not a treasure, you don't seek him, you don't find him, you don't delight in him and walk in obedience to him, John's really clear this morning. Then you don't know Jesus as your savior. You're just a fraud that is going through the motions. Titus 1.16 would echo this. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And you may go, you know what, Chip, that sounds pretty harsh. But here's the thing. It's It's reality. And there will be people on that final day that Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so we have to test, we have to examine ourselves as God's children. His word must shape our worldview and how we interact with the world, not the other way around. Even if it requires us to get labeled, to lose friendships, to to be called names, whatever it is, we must say, no, what God's word says in here is how I am going to live. It is a light into my path. And so I'm okay with being labeled. I'm okay with losing friends. We have to let God's word shape our worldview. And that's what we've been challenging even our students as we've been walking through a series called Ask Anything is God's word has to be the greatest priority in your life. It has to shape your worldview, not what culture says. And as we walk in obedience to him through his word, it assures us of our love for him. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He didn't say you you can try to keep my commandments if you want to, or it's an option. No, he says, you will keep my commandments. I love how Daniel Aiken in his commentary, he says it this way. In keeping and obeying his word, my love for Jesus grows, matures, and is brought to its intended goal. And here's the beauty of the whole thing. The more I know him, the more I love him. And the more I love him, the more I know him. The same thing happens in a godly marriage. It should be that the more a husband and a wife grow to know one another, the more they love one another. And the more love they share with each other, the more they will desire to know each other. The more I love Christ, the more I dive into his word, I'm going to love him even more. And the more I love him, the more I'm going to be driven back to his word and walk in obedience to him. They go hand in hand. But not only is our assurance made evident through walking in obedience, our assurance is seen through the fruit we produce. 1 John 2 verse 6. John says, by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The only way you can pass the test that John gives us, the test of obedience is to abide in Christ. That word abide means to remain in Christ or to completely depend on him. And and hopefully, as you were reading that, kind of alarms went off. In your head, and you go, I've heard John use this word abide before. And you do because he recorded it in his gospel when Jesus said in John 15, verses 4 through 5, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As you continually seek him and you know him more, your love for him grows more. And then you desire to know him even more and you desire to walk in obedience to him. And as a result, you start imitating Christ and you can't help but start walking the way that he walks. And you start taking on his nature, his character. All of a sudden your eyes start changing focus and because you're starting to see things the way he sees them. You take on his hands, and you can't help but get dirty, and you start producing fruit. You know, for me, because of my horticultural background, I love walking through nurseries, plant nurseries. And actually, I walked through two of them yesterday with my parents, and you may be thinking there's something wrong with you. I hate nurseries, okay? I I understand there are people out there that like that. Um, But let's just say one day you decided to walk with me through a plant nursery. And so we start walking through and we start talking about plants. And you're going, oh, that's a cool plant. And just, I know you may not say that. You're like, I hate plants. Plants are not cool. Let's just say you thought that was a cool plant. And we're walking through. We're talking about all these plants. And all of a sudden, though, we get to the tree, the fruit tree section. And we look around and we see that there's no fruits on these trees anywhere to be found. And there's no labels telling us what they are. So we start just having to guess what these fruits are, what these fruit trees are. So we look at their growth habit. We look at the structure and the texture of their bark. We start looking at their leaves. And so we're just having to guess, well, that might be a peach tree. I don't know about you, but I would fail at that. I'm, I'm horrible. I can't identify fruit trees Let's just say we kept walking and all of a sudden we caught in the corner of our eye just just a small fruit. It wasn't mature. It was still green. It was still a baby fruit. But man, we knew what it was. Because man, the fruit gave us that evidence and it was, there was no doubt about what it is. And so we said, oh man, that's a peach tree. That's, a, that's an apple tree over here. That's a lemon tree. And on and on we could go because the fruit testified to what it was. And because we saw the fruit, we didn't have to wonder. We didn't have to guess. We had absolute certainty what type of tree it was. In the same way, as you grow in Christ and you remain in him and you walk in him, you will produce fruit. Fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All these fruits of the Spirit you'll begin to produce. And you know, as you read the fruits of the Spirit, you know what you'll never find? Doubt and despair. You'll never find those. And what happens is you produce this fruit and it continues to grow and mature. It gives evidence in your own life as you see it that you are known by the Father, that you are in him. And another cool thing about the fruit is it also makes your faith visible to your friends. That's how they see your faith is by the fruit that is produced in your life. So I want to ask you, do you see fruit? Is it visible to you? Because it should be. This morning, we really set out to answer a question. We set out to answer a question that we want to know, is it really possible for us as believers to have the assurance of our faith that we have fellowship with him? Or do we just have to guess? Do we have to give in to doubt? And the answer John gives us over and over again is this resounding yes. Yes, you can know. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to despair. This can be a spiritual reality for you that you're in Christ because it's rooted in who Christ is and what he has done for you. And that it is evident and it can be seen by walking in obedience and the fruit that you produce. But maybe, just maybe, there's someone in this room today that you go, I've taken the test already and I've examined my life and I can tell you I don't see fruit and God's word has no place in my life. And I'm tired of doubting. I'm tired tired of wrestling with it. I've got good news is that today can be the day of your salvation. You don't have to leave here and go, you know what? Maybe I need to clean myself up and get my life together uh, before I surrender to Christ. No, today can be the day of your salvation because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf on the cross. He has paid the price so that you can be forgiven and that you can know him. And I pray that if that is you, that today you would surrender to him. And after we dismiss, there'll be pastors up here at the front that would love to talk with you. But if you are and you go, man, I know, I know that what I did, whether it was at eight or 40 years old, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am his, that you would walk out of here with this confidence because of what Christ has done for us. And just maybe you would sing that old hymn that saying, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my savior all the day long. Because as a church family, we have a reason to praise our savior. Because he is our advocate. He is our propitiation. There is no need to doubt. There is no need to worry. Let's pray.